Let's pray. Father, we come to you first of all because we know we need your help. And so we ask again that you would come, meet with us, be with us here uh, this hour. And Lord, would you kindly open our eyes uh, to see wonderful things in this passage uh, that we've been in for the last few weeks. And Lord, our desire is to be changed from these words. And so we pray that you would come and accomplish your purposes in our hearts. And Lord, we ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me back to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, where we've spent the past few weeks looking at Paul's directives to Timothy for spiritual vitality. These directives, of course, were given to a young Timothy who had labored long and hard for the Lord and found himself on a sort of spiritual decline. The apostle Paul became aware of Timothy's weakening state And his love for Timothy and his love for the church drove Paul to write his last inspired letter in 2 Timothy. He wanted to get Timothy, to help Timothy, get back on his feet, spiritually speaking, so that Timothy would get back in the race, as it were, so that he could run the course, the race that God had given him to run and fulfill the ministry that God had given him to do. Paul was about to die, and he needed to make sure that his heir, if you will, could carry the baton. And so Paul wrote this letter, 2 Timothy. Like Timothy, we often find ourselves in situations where our spiritual strength is depleted. We've grown weary in well-doing. Maybe it's years of ministry to an unbelieving spouse, the weariness of raising children, um, submitting perhaps to a boss who is unbelieving and unreasonable, to maybe faithfully discipling people who uh, seem unmoved and unchanged by your sacrifices and diligent effort. There are all sorts of ways we could list Uh, from which we become spiritually taxed. The ways in which you can be drained are innumerable, really. But the point is that we all need to know how to come out of these valleys that we often find ourselves in. None of us are immune to spiritual exhaustion. We need to know how to come out of the valley, and we also need to know how to sustain ourselves as we run the race that God has set before us. And this passage speaks immediately to that need. There are four directives that Paul gives us and gives to Timothy in this text that instruct us on how to regain and also how to sustain our spiritual life, spiritual vigor. You can see these directives if you have a bulletin in your outline there. And so far, we've covered the first two directives, and we'll pick back up with the third directive this morning. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I will give us a little bit of a review after we read Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses... Entrust these to faithful men 
who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life, so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. You may be seated. As I told you last week, and as you're witnessing this morning, we are taking our time through this passage because I think what we see in this text is exactly what our church needs at this particular point. In God's providence, things at Calvary have been shuffled a bit, and we find ourselves looking back on a year that was full of surprises for us. But there were no surprises for God, of course. And we're facing a new year with new opportunities, and we've all been brought face-to-face with the reality that we each live and move, not at our own whim, but under the mighty hand of God. God is in charge of our lives. We don't know what God has for us this year. That is true. But what we do know is that God is sovereign, meaning He's in control. He's good. He is the, the greatest and best of beings. And He is incomprehensibly wise. That's what we do know. So because we know that, we face tomorrow without fear. Because the Lord is in charge. And that kind of knowledge grants to us courage to face whatever the Lord brings our way. But we do have a role to play. We have a part to play. And that part is not to try to play God's part. We don't want to be God. Well, maybe you want to be God, but you shouldn't. It will be exhausting to you. You don't have the resources to be God or to do God's job. So just let God do His job and you do your part, which is what we're talking about in this series of sermons through Second Timothy. We have a part to play, and that part is to, as humbly and faithfully as we can, to live before God and to be His kind of people. And our desire at Calvary, and I know this is all of your desire, we long to be maximally useful for God. Isn't that your desire? To be maximally used by God for the good of others and for God's glory. We have one life. It's all you get. One life. And as the the missionary C.T. Studd said, only one life and it will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I love the last line in that poem. And when I am dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. That's our objective. That's our goal. That's the target every Christian is trying to reach. We want to use our lives in such a way that God gets the glory. And we, humble servants, we get to hear those blessed words. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what we're living for. And I've seen that this year. 
I've seen you live that way this year, selflessly sacrificing for the good of others over the past few months. I've seen you laboring in discipleship to help uh, brothers and sisters overcome uh, enslaving sins, to serve those who have lost loved ones, to serve those who are suffering with chronic illness. I have seen you guys deployed in serving one another. And my desire and our desire as elders is that you each will continue to press on in the ministry that God has given you to do, and that we will all together as a body be able to press on, finish our race, be able to stand before our Lord together and hear the words we all long to hear. And this text is designed to help us, help you accomplish that objective. It's designed to come to you in your spiritual weakness, your spiritual exhaustion, and give you a shot in the arm, strength to finish the course and to carry out the ministry God's given you to accomplish. So let me give you a little bit of a review of where we've been so far. Up to this point, we've seen that Paul's first directive to Timothy was for for him first to be strengthened by grace, meaning that those who are spiritually weak need to get their eyes onto the soul-strengthening reality of God's grace in Christ. Not just those who are weak, but all of us, everyone, whether you're weak or strong, you must continually draw your strength from the well of God's grace. Timothy needed to fix his mind on the reality of God's grace to him and remember that his standing before God was not based upon his own performance. We all need that reminder constantly, that our standing before God is not based upon our own performance. What's it based upon? The sovereign, electing, gracious love of God to us in Christ. That is the metric by which we are evaluated by the Father. We are in Christ. Our failure as parents, as employees, as single people, our failures do not define us. What defines us is our union with Christ, that we are His And we saw a few weeks ago that God's grace, this reality that our identity and our strength is found in God's grace to us in Christ, that reality is like a well from which Christians must steadily draw their spiritual strength. Once you stop doing that, drawing your strength from the well of God's grace, and you turn inwardly and sort of go to your own fountain to get strength and nourishment, you will inevitably decline. The spiritually strong are those who get their eyes off of themselves and fix their eyes onto the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's the first directive. The second directive that Paul gave to Timothy was that he needed to prioritize obedience. Remember, Timothy was a pastor And his fundamental responsibility was to take the Word of God and pass it on to others. That was his baseline responsibility. However, Timothy, in his spiritual decline, apparently, seemed that he needed to be reminded of his baseline responsibility. Because of his weakening, Paul deemed it necessary to remind Timothy of the bottom line Uh, contours of his job description. 
which are teach the word to other people. The reason for this is because we, like Timothy, when we are weakening spiritually, we are prone to leave off our most fundamental responsibilities. When we are growing weak, when we are tired, when we are exhausted, when we get wrapped up in our own weaknesses, we tend to forget our most fundamental responsibilities. And so we need to be reminded when we're down and discouraged that what we need to do to get out of that is to prioritize obedience. What is God calling me to do? What has He told me to do? Not mystically in some funny feeling I have, but from His Word. What has God told me to do in this situation? Once you focus all your mental energy on your own weaknesses, you will spiral downwardly and you will inevitably decline and leave off your most fundamental duties. And so, in order to come out of that spiritual decline, you first strengthen yourself by God's grace, get your eyes off your own performance, get off the wheel of performance, as it were, go to God, learn about His grace and kindness, and you think, wow, He loves me even when I fail. Right, that's grace. And then you say, now what do I do? I don't just sit here and just muse on God's grace. Muse on God's grace as you obey in the very baseline fundamental responsibilities he's given you to do. So the first step then for us is to be strengthened by grace. Secondly, to obey. And you find, this is amazing, when you're you're down spiritually... You get so focused on how you feel. I just feel dry. I feel down. I feel dark. I feel ad infinitum. But you find, like Cain in Genesis 4, when you do what God calls you to do, that there is a lifting up. That's Genesis 4. Uh, You find that when you obey, that your countenance lifts. Not that you're happy all of a sudden, but you're, you're making progress, and you're obeying. And it's kind of like Eric Liddell, the, the Olympic athlete, who said, uh, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his smile. Right? When you obey God, all of a sudden you think, huh, I'm not worried about how I feel, but I feel nice. This is good. I'm, you know, the laundry's done. The things are ironed. The, the job is done. The task is completed. It's a good feeling. We don't live for those feelings, but we find that when we obey God, our countenance lifts and the joy of God's smile is upon us. And that's, that's inexpressible joy. And then last week, we began looking at verses 3 to 6, where Paul gave Timothy a third directive for spiritual vitality. And that directive is this, have the right expectations. You want to come out of spiritual weakness? You want to maintain your spiritual strength? Maintain. Keep the right expectations about your life. If you want to be spiritually strong and mature, it's necessary that you live your Christian life with the right set of expectations. And so to help Timothy with this, Paul gave him three analogies. Three ways of thinking about his life that was designed to reshape Timothy's thinking so that it would better match with reality. And the first 
analogy Paul gave to Timothy was that of a soldier. Timothy needed to have the expectations of a soldier engaged in war. He needed to throw off his peacetime mentality and put on a wartime mindset that viewed his life through the lens of an ongoing battle. Timothy needed to see himself as a soldier enlisted in the Lord's army, carrying out orders given to him from above. As a simple, low-ranking soldier in the Lord's army, Timothy didn't need to know the ins and outs of what God was doing, his larger strategy in the war. Timothy didn't need to know that. He needed to know what his orders were in his little sphere of the world. He had been stationed by the general in a particular place in the battlefield. And Timothy's responsibility was to receive those orders and to carry out his duties faithfully. He needed to beware that he didn't get pulled into distractions and to stay focused on the mission that God had given him to do. Now, there are so many parallels there uh, and relevant, I mean, certainly applications to our own life where we view our own life as a soldier for the Lord. This is not just Timothy. This is us as well. Your flourishing as a Christian, let me say it this way, your flourishing as a Christian is tied up in the baseline recognition that you are not here for vacation. I'll say that again. Your flourishing as a Christian is tied up in the baseline recognition that you are not here on this earth for vacation, but you are in active duty serving the Lord. You are engaged in a war, and war is not easy. If you have a vacation mentality, you will live your life constantly disappointed. At least your Christian life. You have been, by God, sovereignly placed in a strategic ministry location. At work, at home, at Calvary Bible Church. And you have been placed there for the good of those around you and for the greater glory of God. You have a mission. Think about the spheres in which you live. In each one of those, God has given you a mission to accomplish, an objective to complete. He has placed you where you are on the battlefield to carry out that objective. Now, Imagine the efficiency of an army where the general puts his soldiers strategically. He knows what he's doing. He places them at all of these strategic locations to win the battle. And constantly, the soldiers, the low-level soldiers, are constantly moaning back to the general about where they are in the battlefield. And how efficient will that be? I mean, how are you going to win a war when your soldiers are only grumbling and complaining all the time? It's time for us as God's people to stop that. (laughs) To stop moaning about our place in the trenches. The trenches are hard. No one wants to be in the trenches, right? You get trench foot. Who wants to be there? No one wants to be there. We don't like that. But someone has to be there. And God sovereignly places you where you are in the battlefield out of the overflow of His wisdom. 
And your job is to receive your orders and carry out the objective that he has given you. You need to live with the objective of, I want to be a good soldier for Christ. That's what I want to be. I don't care where he places me. Send me, Lord. I want to be a faithful soldier. Even if that ministry is in utter obscurity. No one ever sees me. I'm hidden. Well, you know what? You will have eternity to reap your harvest from serving in obscurity. The Father who sees in secret rewards you in secret. The first, the people that get to stand up and preach, I think, they will be last. But the last, those low-level servants who are hidden and doing all sorts of ministry that no one knows about, they will be first. And I think that's the way it should be. And that's the way God has orchestrated it. All right, I got off into another sermon. This is why this is going to be a long series. We want to have as our objective the simple aim of being a good soldier. That's it. I just want to be a good soldier for Jesus and die and go to heaven. That's what I want to be. That's the first analogy that Paul gives in verse 4. Then we come to verse 5, to a second analogy that Paul gives in verse 5. It's the analogy of an athlete. So look with me there in verse 5. This is where we'll spend our time today. 2 Timothy 2, verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. If anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. This, of course was one of Paul's favorite ways of thinking about the Christian life, as an athlete, as really as one grand athletic event. More than any other author in the New Testament, Paul uses the athletic metaphor to convey key fundamental truths about the Christian life. It was a ready analogy, of course, because uh, just as it is today, sports, athletics, was ubiquitous. It was everywhere. Uh, everyone would have been able to hear Paul's analogy about athletic, athletics and immediately map onto that some uh, applicational principle. In the Greek world that Paul inhabited, there were four great national athletic festivals besides a myriad of smaller competitions. But the two we, we, we know best were the Isthmian Games that were held in Corinth. You probably heard of the Isthmian Games and the Olympics that were held in Olympia. These were large, elaborate festivals where people would come from all over Greece to watch these competitions. And people would stay in tents, right? They They would camp out in tents in order to go to the Colosseums and watch these stadiums, which is why Paul would have had a great business being a tent maker. He would have been able to repair all of the tents of all these people who were coming. And as he's repairing their tent, he's sharing the gospel, I could imagine, with them. At any rate, the the Olympic Games were massive. The Isthmian Games were massive. And people would come from all over the known world to spectate. These festivals included competitions like chariot races, foot races, discus, long jump, the javelin, boxing, wrestling, etc., 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 even poetry reading in some places. Um, And the competitors then in these events came from all over the Greek world, and they were called athletes in Greek. They were called athletes in Greek. We we call them 
athletes. Right, we just transliterate the Greek word, which means to contend or to struggle. The word athlete means to contend or to struggle. It referred to someone who was practiced in a specific area who would then contend in a competition for the crown. Athletes, of course, just like today, were required to train diligently if they wanted to win the prize. In fact, there was no second place. It, it was all or nothing. In some, uh, some cases, it was victory or death. In fact, I read this week of an inscription uh, that was found in Olympia. Uh, it's really fascinating. Uh, and, and it was a, an Olympic athlete in Olympia, I think in the first century, uh, and he had made, I, I wrote it down here, he, he made this commitment uh, to Zeus. And on his, it was his uh, tombstone where they found this inscription. And on the inscription, it was uh, written this. Here he died, boxing in the stadium, having prayed to Zeus for either victory or death. Age 35. Farewell. His name was Agathus Damon, which is like good spirit. Um, it's fascinating. Victory or death. 35 years old. Prime of life. Victory or death. Zeus, give me the victory or kill me. And I'm going to die trying to win. There was no second place. You went for the gold or you died trying. Which puts into perspective Paul's use of the metaphor. Often when we think about athletic metaphors, we think, well, who are we in competition with? You know, are we competing against other Christians to try to win? Um, no, we have one goal that we're all, we're all pursuing. And everyone who competes uh, according to God's rules will win the crown. And so these men in the first century would train strenuously in order to come out on top and to get the glory of the victory. And so the word athlete was fitting. They were contenders or strugglers, and some of them even losing their lives in the process. In fact, Hebrews 10.32 uses the word athlete to describe suffering. Suffering. And often when you think about athletic training, this is what it entails. You're contending, you're straining, you're struggling, you're suffering. Now, I know this is not just my reality. Uh, sometimes when I'm driving, I'll look over and I see someone running. You know where I'm going with this, don't you? You see someone running and you pass them in your car, of course, and you pass them and you look, and it looks like they're suffering. They look miserable. And often, I look at them and I think, I do not want to be you right now. <laughs> now, sometimes you look at a runner and it's like they're experiencing the runner's high, you know, all is well in the world. But others of us, and I'll speak for myself too, we don't look good when we're running. We look like we're suffering. This is why I run early in the morning when no one can see me. But it requires this kind of diligent effort. It was the same in the first century. If you're going to run a marathon, you've got to put in the time, the energy, uh, sometimes the embarrassment of sweating, of, of crying, of running and looking like you're about to die. You've got to put that in if you're going to be able to run a marathon and win the prize, or at least just to finish, which is what most of us have as our target. It was exactly the same in the first century. The labor required to win was intense, and men would dedicate the best years of their lives training in order to win the crown. And most of the winners were professional athletes who would have trained full-time as their profession. 
but even for those who weren't professional athletes, they had to, um, under oath, state that they had trained for 10, month, 10 months in their particular event leading up to the games. They had to put in the time, the diligence, the effort, the energy in order to compete at the highest level. Now, that's the mindset of the athlete. And Paul comes to Timothy and he says, Dear brother, this is the mindset you need. This is what you have to be thinking. This is the mindset you need to put on. You need to think of yourself in terms of an Olympic athlete competing at the highest level. It was required of him that he put in the diligence and effort required to win the prize. If Timothy was going to compete in the Christian life, he needed to adopt this mentality. Now, let me ask you a question. You think about your Christian life. Do you think in terms of, I'm an athlete competing at the highest level of competition? Paul looked around at these pagans who would, before they would contend in the games, they would swear to Zeus, just like our friend Agathus did. He would swear to Zeus, give me victory or death. He would train his entire life for this one moment. And Paul looked around at that and he thought, how in the world could a Christian be outdone by these people? How, how could a Christian be outdone by these people who want to win a perishable crown when we have an imperishable eternity and reward to gain in our competition? And so Paul comes to Timothy and says, Timothy, you don't want to be outdone by all of these people. Your diligence and your effort in godliness ought to put them all to shame. They ought to look at you and say, we need to train like a Christian if we're going to win. This is why in 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul exhorted Timothy to train himself for the purpose of godliness. The word train is the word gymnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium. It means to exercise vigorously or to train to the point of wearying yourself. Of course, the implication is hard, diligent, dedicated, focused, Labor. Is that characteristic of your Christian life? Now the point here is this. The grace that you've strengthened yourself with, in verse 1, should, ought to compel you to labor earnestly for the Lord and to be diligent for the God who has been so gracious to you in Christ. This is not go work hard for your salvation, right? We've already, step one, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You've already done that. You understand this is not about your effort. You're not looking at your performance. Now you're set free to live for God, knowing that your, your salvation, your eternity doesn't hinge on your performance. What are you going to do? Well, Paul says you live like an Olympic athlete. You train diligently. You work hard to be godly. Every Christian ought to be training themselves for the purpose of godliness. Where are you on the spectrum? Now, my objective here is not to make you feel bad, uh, but to point you to the standard 
so that we all sort of rise up together and pursue this goal more earnestly. So back to spiritual weakness. Could it be that you're spiritually weak and exhausted because you have not been training yourself for the purpose of godliness? If you don't train yourself by the means of grace and you get out and try to run the Christian marathon, you won't have the lung capacity to sustain the race, sustain yourself in the race. So let me ask you, how are you doing in your training regimen? Are you engaged in any sort of training regimen for godliness? Now you can see why this sermon series would go very long. Because everything in me right now wants to go into all the details about how you could be training. But I want to just give you three. Three quick um, ways, exercises um, that you do to strengthen yourself uh, for the athletic competition God has set before us. Three things. These are ordinary means of God's grace. You know them. But it's not enough to know them. Right? You, you, you have the Bowflex in your garage. I know it's there. I'm practically a, you know, a power lifter. No, it doesn't work that way. Right? You, you know it's there, then you've got to go exercise. You've got to go put in the work. So what are the means of grace that God has given us to regain spiritual strength and sustain spiritual strength? First, the Word of God. If you would be spiritually strong, you must daily take in the Word of God. That looks like reading Scripture, meditating on Scripture, and obeying Scripture. So what's your Bible reading plan like? We just put out a Bible reading uh, a flyer. I think it was January 1. There's an email that went out. All these Bible reading plans. Um, if you have a question about that, talk to one of the elders. Talk to any of us. We, we're happy to help you strengthen yourself in, in, the, in taking in the Word of God. But our, our greatest desire really is not so much that you just start reading the Bible. We want you to. You should be doing that. Uh, but that you have a heart to obey it. You should be reading the Word. You should be meditating on it. We'll talk some about that next week. But you should most of all be obeying the Word of God. Don't expect to be spiritually strong if you're not exercising yourself in obeying God's Word. All right? So that's the first means of God's grace by which you can strengthen yourself for this athletic competition, which is your Christian life. The second one is prayer. If you find yourself spiritually weak, I would almost guarantee that there is a deficit in your prayer life. Prayer is the way that we advertise our dependence upon God to God. It's the way we express our need for God and we draw our strength from him for the work he's given us to do. So if you are not consistently praying, you will inevitably be weakening. If you are not consistently praying, you will inevitably be weakening. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, was right when he said, those who live without prayer live without God in the world. Those who live without prayer live without God. So God loves you too much to let you go throughout his world without him and be strong. 
So he will help you to see your weakness and bring you low in order for you to renew your dedication, your commitment, holy resolve to be a person of prayer. Third, so we've seen the Bible, prayer. The third means of God's grace is fellowship. Fellowship. Your spiritual weakness might be connected to your lack of communion with other believers. And when you find yourself down, you need to sort of diagnose yourself. Why am I here? How did I get here? What's going on? And, and these are baseline metrics. Am I praying? When's the last time I read my Bible? When's the last time I went on a walk and meditated on one verse? Uh, when's the last time I was fellowshipping with other believers outside of Sunday? When is the last time I gave rather than taking? When's the last time I blessed someone with a meal rather than just being the recipient of a meal? Now, I understand that's hard to do at Calvary. We've always felt like we were outdone by you guys since we got here. Um, But the reality is, is that you want to have an impulse where you want to be serving others. This is Romans 12. I think it's Romans 12. Outdo one another. You want to outdo one another in showing love and showing honor. There ought to be some sort of holy competition between us. Right? I'm going to serve you better than you serve me. Right? And when you live in an environment like that, it's wonderful. Which is, I mean, it's largely what we have at Calvary. But if you find yourself down, ask yourself, when was the last time I served someone else? When was the last time I prayed for them? When was the last time I called or texted them. So I'd ask you, are you prioritizing serving others in your life? Are you committed to corporate worship? Right? You say, well, I come to church on Sunday and I'm just, you know, I'm just tired. His sermons are so boring. Don't tell me that. Um, <laughs> well, let me ask you, uh, what was your Saturday like? How did you prepare yourself to come and serve the body on Sunday? Did you take Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening to prepare your heart to be ready for today? If you find yourself spiritually weak and Sundays being especially tumultuous, well, step back to Saturday. Say, okay, what can we do to get ready to worship the Lord and serve others on Sunday? And that starts probably Saturday afternoon. I could go on, but these are just three basics here of training yourself for the purpose of godliness. These are three exercises. These are three things, means of grace, that you need to be accessing if you're going to grow spiritually and not decline. And I will tell you, if you're not committed to these three means of grace, just as an Olympic athlete is committed to win the gold, you're declining. It's just the bottom line reality. If you're not committed to the Word of God and fellowship and prayer in the same way that the Olympic athlete is committed to win, you're declining. Because that's the standard. This is Paul setting the standard for God's people here. You want the general trajectory of your life to be one of increasing commitment to these ordinary means of grace. That's what you want. You want your life to be increasingly marked by dedication to the Word of God, prayer, and fellowship. If, it's not, if that's not the trajectory of your life, you need to repent. You need to shift. You need help. And we want to help you. That's why we're doing this sermon series. You need to change, and God will help you change. But 
if you continue on the trajectory you're on, you will decline and you'll find yourself at the bottom of a spiral. And this is God's grace to you right now to help you say, okay, I'm going to stop and I'm going to put on the right way of living and the right mentality so that I can spiral up and be God's kind of man or woman or child. And you'll find as you begin doing things God's way and prioritizing his priorities that your strength will be revived. And you'll find yourself running your race well and you look up and you think, wow, I didn't know I could do that. But no matter how well you train, Paul wants to take it a little bit further in verse 5. No matter how well you train, no matter how hard the greatest athlete trains, if he, according to verse 5, does not compete according to the rules, he does not win the prize. Bottom line. Work as hard as you want to work, but if you do not train according to the rules, or compete rather, according to the rules, you will not win. You break the rules, you are disqualified. In fact, in the first century, if you broke the rules, you were disqualified, but it went further. You would be publicly shamed and whipped and fined. So train hard was the motto of the first century athlete, but also submit to the rules. Don't, Don't bend them. Don't try to flex the rules. No matter how great the athlete was, he was not greater than the rules. He could not bend or flex the rules. He had to receive them from above. In the same way, Timothy needed to view himself as an athlete, working hard, training diligently, but he was an athlete under the rule of God, meaning that his life should be marked by constant conformity to the Word of God. Those are the rules in the Christian competition. Now, that's always important. We've got to know the rule book. This is the rule book. We've got to know it. We've got to live by the rules that God has given. But it's especially important to be mindful of the rules when you're weak and you're tired. When do you sin the easiest? When you're tired and hungry, I would propose, if you're like me. When you are weakest, you are the most prone to break God's rules. I think this is why Paul says this this way. It's always baffled me a bit why Paul says, you know, this is the analogy he uses. Um, But I think this is why, because Timothy is weakening, he's declining, it seems. And Paul's reminding him that you've got to compete and train hard, have the minds of an athlete, but you also have to know that your weakness is not going to justify you breaking the rules. God is impartial. He's an impartial umpire. And you don't have special favor to modify the rules that God has laid down. I remember when I was in high school, uh, I ran track. Not because I liked track, uh, but because my football coach made us all run track uh, to keep us in shape during the offseason. And I was somewhat, believe it or not, somewhat fast back then. And because of that, I was roped into running the 4x400 relay. We called it the my relay. I don't know what they call it these days. Um... I'm not sure, but I hated that race. I don't know if you've ever ran that race, but I hated it. I was a football player, so we ran like 40 yards, right, or 100 yards. And that was the longest I ever wanted to run, was 100 yards. I had no other reason to run that. And I worked hard so that I only have to ever run 100 yards. And then our, our football coach said, no, you all have to run. 
And the faster of you will have to run on this 4x400 relay, which is one lap. You know, it's four guys run one lap around the track. And it's supposed to be a sprint, uh, which to me, that's like a marathon. But one full lap. I, only, I didn't want to do that, but I had to do it. And I remember I was the first leg, I think because I was the slowest guy on our team, but I was the first leg, and the first leg around the 4x400, you have to stay in your lane. And then after that, you kind of fall in, and you can get in the inside lane. But I remember running that race, you know, and thinking, what am I doing? Why, why, am, I, why am I here? Why am I running this race? Uh, but, there, you know, your competitive drive sort of kicks in, and you're like, okay, let's win this thing. And I remember about the second or third turn, I would be tempted to sort of just step into the inside lane just a little bit so I could kind of slack off, take a little bit of a break, catch up my time on the, you know, by stepping in the inside lane, get back in my lane, and no one would have ever known what I did. And as I ran, I got tireder, of course, but my, the temptation to cheat went up and up and up and up and up. I, I can tell you with a clear conscience I did never do that, but the temptation was there. And I could feel it as I ran. And as the race went on, I could feel this pressure to cheat, to break the rules. And you do that, you're disqualified. Your whole team's disqualified. Now, that's just a, a simple little race. In the first century, some of their boxing matches lasted four hours. So imagine, here you are in the ring. A guy is trying to pummel you. And you're trying to save your life. And because you've made a vow to Zeus that you're going to die if you don't win. And you're trying to just survive. And four hours go by. How tempted are you going to be to just sort of cheat? All right, if I could just sneak in like a, a low blow or something to just, you know, give me an advantage. And that really is the temptation in the Christian life. When you are tired, when you are weak, when you're exhausted, you are most prone to look for ways to modify God's word and justify your sin. It could be that you're coming home from work, tired, exhausted, and you're thinking, I don't care what God says about loving my wife, leading my loud family. I'm going home, and I'm going to sit on the couch and veg out. Right? It's in these moments when you're tired, when you say, I don't care. I know Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. I just need a break. That's the fourth hour of the boxing match. Right? It's when you need to be the most alert, the most aware, when you need to have this mentality that I am in a competition at the highest level and victory is all I have. It's victory or death for me. If I'm disqualified, I'm out. God is the one who sets the rules and, and the rules can't be broken if I'm tired or exhausted. They remain the same. Now, all of this reminds us, once again, that we're the ones who are not in charge. There's someone else outside who makes the rules. I played football the other day with some of the neighborhood kids, and um, I won't mention any of their names, but we were playing football, and uh, my son was out there, and we were playing, and I was struck by how quickly the rules were changing. You know, you just think, okay, this is baffling and exhausting trying to keep up with what the rules are. And so finally, I just took the reins and said, okay, I'm in charge here, all right? Here are the rules. 
And inevitably, they were still moaning about, well, what about this and this? God is not that way, right? Um, well, I guess he's that, that way in the sense that he steps in and he makes the rules. He has made the rules. We don't get to modify them at our whim. And this, of course, reminds us that we live our lives underneath the authority of the rule giver. He is the one who is in charge. Timothy, you're an athlete. You're competing at the highest level here. Right? You've got a crown to win. You don't get to moan about the rules of the match. You don't get to moan about the direction of your course. You, have, you must, rather, submit to the rules and the regulations that God has laid out for you. You have a course to run. You must run it. Now, of course, this can go without applying, but I want to make a, a quick application here. When we think about our own lives... Hebrews 12 talks about the course that God has set before us. And I think that's specific to each one of us. God has given each one of us a course to run. And he's the one who has set the course. I don't know if you ever ran cross country, but these guys do crazy things. You know, they run all through the woods, all around. And there's no track, you know, that I was used to. You run in a circle. That's simple. That's guys like me. I'm simple. Let me run in a circle. I'm fine with that. But cross country guys run all over the place. And there's a, a rule giver, there's a, a, someone who designs the course, and they design it, and the cross-country athlete, his responsibility is to run his course. He doesn't moan about it, he runs the course set before him. In the same way, God is the one who has set your course. No matter how smooth or difficult it is, your job is to run it. So how are you doing? Are you focused on the complexity of your course, or are you moment by moment saying, Lord, help me to run this race? Not only must you run the race, but you must run it according to the instructions that God has given. We don't want to look over and say, well, of course, he's running well. Look how smooth his course is. If my course was that easy, I would have as good a time as he does. Well, you don't know that. You don't know that. You don't know this brother. You don't know his situation. But God does. And God has sovereignly set each one of our courses according to each one of us. And you are not the umpire. You're not the authority. God has set your path. And the sooner you submit to the course he set before you, the happier you'll be. Amen? Now, I want to show you something really quickly. Uh, flip with me over to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. I found this so helpful. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And it, it maps really well onto this course analogy. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13. Solomon says, Consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. Now I'm going to make an application of this. There are some legs of your race that will be smooth and prosperous. And your responsibility in the days of prosperity, be happy. Be grateful for that leg. 
Don't, don't be in the, you know, the straightaway and be thinking about, oh, the hill's coming, the hill's coming, the hill's coming. Enjoy the straightaway. Be grateful for that leg of the race because there are other legs of the race that will be full of adversity. And you need to remember that God is the one who has decreed every leg of your race. Don't get caught up in trying to straighten what God has bent. He is the one who charts the course you are to run every bend, every turn, every straightaway. Trust Him, and by the strength He supplies, run the race that He set before you, and do it in His way. And when you do that, you will be able to say, back to 2 Timothy, and turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. If you do this, if you say, God is the one who straightens, God is the one who bends. There are good days, there are bad days. There are, there are smooth legs of my journey, there are hills. If you do that and say, well, God is the one who's done this, I'm going to be happy in the great days. I'm going to remember in the hard days that the same God who made the difficult day also made the happy day. And I'm going to trust Him and resign myself to His, um, to his rule. If you do that, you'll be able to say with Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. I said 2 Timothy 4, verse 12. I meant 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Some of you are looking at Tychicus and thinking, what? <laughs> Be like Tychicus. Run your race well. <clears throat> First Timothy 4, verse 12. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. This is how Paul conceived of his life. Grand athletic event. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. That is what Paul lived for. That was his aim. This is how he conceived of his entire life, was as an athletic competition, a fight, a race, um, a boxing match. And so when Paul received a, a blow to the face, he wasn't shocked. If you're walking through town and someone comes up and punches you in the face, it's shocking. Right? I'm, I'm just trying to walk with my family. Leave me alone. But if you're in a boxing match and someone punches you in the face, you think, okay, this is normal life. And this is how Paul lived. He, he didn't recoil from the blow because he knew that's what happens in boxing matches. He didn't moan about the length of the race because he knew he was in a marathon. And his objective was to get that crown crown of righteousness. Paul did not anticipate ease and leisure in his life because he knew that ease and leisure was not the pathway to victory. And God would have you have the same mindset. If your mentality is of ease and leisure and comfort, you will not win the crown. God's desire for you on the authority of Scripture 
is that you throw off that mindset of a vacation and ease and comfort and that you say, I am in the fight of my life and it's victory or death and heaven and hell are at stake. Therefore, I will with all my energy train myself for godliness. I will strive to be God's kind of man or woman. May the Lord help us all pursue that. Let's pray. Father, we are reminded at just how weak we are when we consider the standard that you've set. And for Father, we're reminded once again of that initial directive that if we're going to be your kind of people... We have to draw our strength from your grace because when we look at our own performance, Father, there's nothing more humbling than that. Father, we desire that we could join with the Apostle Paul and say that we worked hard. Nevertheless, it was not us, but your grace in us, operating to accomplish your purposes. And may we be able to join him and say, your grace towards us was not in vain. May your grace, Lord, compel us to live and compete, uh, to live with the mentality of competing at the highest level of the Olympic athlete. And Father, our crown is far more precious than a gold medal. It's far more precious than fame here and now. We live and labor for eternity. So Lord, I pray that you would help each one of us, those who are spiritually weak. I pray that you would help them to be strengthened by your grace and put on the mindset of an athlete. And those who are running well, Lord, I pray that you would help them to continually draw their strength from your grace and exercise themselves more earnestly to be your kind of man, man, woman, or child. And Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.